Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Paul Zumo, who is the Manager of Policy Research and Analysis for the American Public Power Association. So welcome to the interview, Paul. All right, thanks for having me, Markham. Now, I'm very interested in the non-privately owned utilities in the U.S. because I didn't realize there were so many of them. And maybe tell us a little bit about how, you know, what your association does and who its members are. Sure, great. Uh, thanks again for, for this opportunity. The American Public Power Association, we represent uh, about 2,000 publicly owned electric utilities in the United States. Um, we do uh, we do lobbying on their behalf. We provide educational resources. That's sort of where, where I where I come in. I provide stats and and do research on issues, especially related to issues related to the utility of the future and things of that nature. So as I said, there's 2,000 publicly owned electric utilities in the United States. To put that in perspective, there are about 3,000 electric utilities in the United States. So we represent two thirds of the number of utilities. Um, there is also rural electric co-ops who, I believe there's about 800 of those. Uh, co-ops are similar to us, except they're governed by a board that is, and, and they are governed by their, basically they're owned by the customers. And public power utilities are, um, are sometimes municipally owned, um, sometimes they're state or, or county associated, uh, county utilities. And then the rest are investor-owned utilities. But in terms of actual retail sales, public power and co-ops are about 15% each, and then IOUs represent about 70. So in terms of overall scale, public power utilities tend to be much smaller. Median customer size for public power utilities is about 2,000. Um, so, um, but we, we're in all states except Hawaii. So if I understand this correctly, uh, a municipality, for instance, a city, a town might own a, its own uh, a utility. Mm-hmm. Um, why are these, uh, you know, big cities, small cities, the rural, urban, uh, give us a little sense of where they're located and what the, in the scope of the size of them. Sure. Uh, and, and it's all of the above. We have some, uh, large cities like Los Angeles has the Los Angeles department of water and power, uh, Phoenix has salt river project, um, Puerto Rico, which uh, we have, we also represent, uh, we have utilities in, in the, Territory, U.S. territories, like Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands, American Samoa, um, and then lots of other large cities like Jacksonville have their own in San Antonio and Austin. Um, but lots of small systems, as I mentioned before, um, located in, as I said, in every state except Hawaii. Lots of utilities, especially in the Midwest and the Southeast parts of the United States, um, with some some mid-sized systems, um, mid mid and large systems systems. So in rural areas, certainly. Um, rural areas are more represented by the co-ops generally, but we do have some rural systems that are kind of larger ge- geographically, but smaller in terms of population. But most of ours are kind of densely populated areas either way, even if they're small populations, they're densely populated. 
Uh, Paul, I'm very curious how, uh, you know, publicly owned power uh, companies are approaching the energy transition, the transition, you know, the electrification of the economy, the modernization of the American grid. There's a very vigorous debate going on in the United States, which interesting, we don't have in Canada, where we almost never talk about our electricity system in Canada. That's not the case in the US. You talk about it all the time, because it's being transformed. And so where do the uh, public power companies fit into that? What's your take? And what's their take on, you know, the modernization of the grid? Uh, public power utilities are embracing the changes that are happening. They, they, they look at this, at, at this as an opportunity to, to help their customers, to help their the residents of their cities. Um, you have some um, utilities like um, Sacramento Municipal Utility District in California, who's already doing a lot with electric vehicles and electrification and um, adopting renewable resources. Um, plenty of other utilities that are uh, transitioning their to, to um, renewable resources and other non-emitting forms of generation. Um, uh, when you look at electrification, I think they look at EVs as an opportunity here, both in terms of the environmental benefits, but also as the addition, additional um, uh, source of load that they can take on. Um, we're, we're talking about home space heating as well, which is space heating and electrification. So um, there are plenty of plenty of, of our members who are, are, are looking at the opportunities, but also want to do this without sacrificing the tenants of reliability and affordability and security. Right. Now, if you look at it from a utilities point of view, they, their load is, for many of them have been has been essentially flat over the last 10 or 15 years. But hey, if you're in the electricity business, you want to sell more electricity if the opportunity presents itself. And we have on we have a number of those. So on the one hand, we have the introduction of wind, solar, and batteries. So there's an opportunity to increase uh, generation and do it in a different way. Uh, and then you have the electrification of transportation. So there's a big source of, of new load. Then you have the electrification of your building stock, another huge opportunity. And then depending on where the, the uh, uh, utility is located, you have electrification of industry. And then on top of that, maybe, maybe green hydrogen which could be a potentially a, a very large market. So if you look at it from that point of view, this has got to be a very exciting time for your members. It, it is. And um, I should back up and mention that we, we have what's called the Moving Public Power Forward uh, Strategic Pillar. And um, under this pillar, uh, I mentioned utility, the future type issues. And we, have, we get a lot of engagement on these different types of issues. And you mentioned hydrogen. We have members who are, uh, for example, in, in Utah, who are um, the Intermountain Power power project, which are converting coal, to, coal generation to natural gas, with, but, but also with a hydrogen uh, potential for, for hydrogen electricity, hydrogen generation. Uh, we have another member in Utah that is uh, invested in uh, small modular reactors. So kind of the next stage of nuclear capacity, um, um, even car carbon capture and sequestration. And then there are members who are also looking at uh, solar wind and other renewable resources where it's appropriate for their um, in their particular area. Uh, I should mention also an important part of uh, important point here though for, for public power utilities in the United States um, because public power utilities are not uh, are not are not are tax tax exempt entities we can't claim the tax credits so we don't have comparable incentives to the invest our own utilities for investing in, in renewables so for when we do invest in renewables they, they 
our members generally have to engage in power purchase agreements. So engage with a third party to develop those resources. Well, that's very interesting. And I, 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 this is top of mind for me because over the last two or three years, we've seen in Alberta, which is kind of Canada's Texas, uh, it has the best wind and solar resources in Canada. And the development of those resources is growing rapidly because of power purchase agreements. And what we're seeing is banks and, and other big industries, even some of the big American giants like Amazon and Google are entering into power purchase agreements because you know they're all looking for clean electricity at a low price. And, and it's easy to do in Alberta because they have a market structure. They're not, they don't have a provincially owned crown corporation as the gatekeeper. They can build it and connect it to the, to the grid. And it, it seems, so are, are you suggesting that this is a common practice down amongst your members? For our members, yes, uh, to, to, to get to, because of the tax lack of comparable uh, incentives to, to, generate, uh, to develop the resources themselves. So they, so they engage with third parties. Uh, they're also working with uh, large companies as well on the other end. Uh, for example, I, I believe Omaha is working with um, maybe Google and other large companies who want to develop, who want renewable resources in their portfolio to be powered by those resources. So Google, so the utility will work with both the large company and then work with a third party developer to ensure that they can add those resources to help those customers um, in terms of generating more clean uh, carbon-free power. Let's talk about the, the uh, utility of the future. I'm glad you brought that up because that it seems to me, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, but uh, uh, is that we used to have this, you know, big, it was centralized, it was big thermal units, generally maybe it was nuclear, uh, maybe hydro, but a lot of the thermal uh, in form of coal. And now we're, we're, thanks to renewables, we're flattening that structure and we're turning these central centralized uh, business models into almost platforms where where many people can generate electricity and sell electricity and services around electricity on that on that platform. Is that what we're talking about? To some degree, I think that is a model that some some that can be helpful and beneficial uh, to have distributed resources. You're talking about distributed resources. Uh, uh, solar rooftop, customers having it on their rooftops. Um, but I think we're also looking at utility scale. We're still looking at centralized resources. And really, the, I, I, th I think for our members, it's, it's really essential that it's that whatever resources they add to their portfolio, again, uh, don't add costs, don't impact reliability. So I think they're careful to, to, to make sure that they have enough, they have sufficient power reserves uh, to keep the lights on. Um, um, so they're, they're investing in, even if it is with a third party are investing in, in investing in these centralized resources as well. Uh, I think distributed resources have definitely have a part to play, uh, especially in areas of the country, which in the Southwest and California, which, which are have much more sunlight, um, that generation is certainly helpful, especially to mitigate some of the congestion that they're experiencing. On the other hand, those resources can also not fit with, you know, when you look at when solar is available, it's during the, it's before peak hours, you generally speaking. So you want to be able to have backup capacity and you want to also make sure that uh, customers who do have rooftop solar um, 
they are compensated fairly, but not without impacting negatively the non-solar customers. So I think rate design is also something that our members are looking at in terms of these resources. Again, making sure that the, uh, the solar rooftop customers are fairly compensated for the generation they provide, uh, but not overly compensated, uh, kind of shifting, basically shifting uh, between uh, different classes of customers. How are the uh, your members navigating the complexity of these kinds of changes? Because just in the in the few minutes that we've been talking about, we've talked about all you know new technologies around generation and new technologies around around distribution and and market design and rate design. And I mean, my take on this, Paul, as a journalist, sort of as an observer, uh, is is the. This, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, there've been all of these new sorts of uh, technology, including ones we haven't talked about, like artificial intelligent machine learning and, big, yeah. you know, analytics and all of that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it, you have this older grid, you know, we have an industry that grew up over the last 125 years or so. And all of a sudden there's this, this tsunami of new technologies, changing consumer expectations, changing regulatory, regulatory regimes, concerns about climate change, need to decarbonize. And it's a lot to navigate. Right. It, it is. But I, I think our members are taking their experience They're You know, some of our members are over 100 years old. And taking it and adapting to the to new to this new grid. Um, I think first of all, I'd just like to say that the existing grid, though it obviously has to adapt and, and there has to be changes and we have to have changes to distribution infrastructure, is still very reliable. I mean, in the United States, we're looking at reliability rates over well over ninety nine percent. So it's a question of again being cost conscious, 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 making sure that those changes aren't going to dramatically increase increase costs. Um, we are a resource. EPPA uh, helps our members. They, they talk to each other. They do uh, conferences, meetings, papers. They get to chat with each other, uh, learn lessons learned from each other. What are, what are the best practices? Um, we have our own uh, research and, and, and development um, group within EPPA called DEED. Uh, and DEED members um, have innovative projects that are funded by, the, by DEED. And uh, so, this is a way for utilities to dip their toes into certain new technologies, and then they can learn from themselves, and then they apply those, and then other members can learn lessons from those new technologies. Um, I would also say the, the new workforce, our, our members are hiring, and it's not just the traditional workforce, it's communicators, it's um, other types of research development type professionals that they're hiring to come on board and to help help with this transition well i'm very curious uh, paul uh but your take on the likelihood of success for this are you optimistic that your members will successfully surf the the changes over the next 10 or 20 years and come out on the other end of this let's say 2050 just for yeah. sake of sake of argument yeah. they'll be decarbonized they'll be still be reliable they'll still be uh uh Rely, uh, they'll still be low, low cost or reasonable cost, and and they'll have incorporated all of these new sources of load like EVs and heat pumps and so on. Are you optimistic that that you know the transition is going to be successful and r relatively painless? 
I'm optimistic that our members will navigate this well and that they will do what's be- uh, uh, there, there will be challenges. I think there's a lot of things just, just aside from our members, when you look at the resource challenges, especially with going to increased EVs and um, batteries that are including battery storage, um, plenty of opportunities there, but there's also lots of supply chain risks. We're, getting, we're increasing the amount of lithium, for example, that we're relying upon. Um, and, we're, and we're importing this from around the globe. And we're, we're asking to probably increase the amount of lithium that we're producing seven, eight fold over the next 10 years. Um, plus there are other logistical challenges. So I, I think we have to, as an entire industry, navigate the changes. But do our, will our members, I mean, they've been successful for so far um, with, with very, I mean, our industry isn't the same as it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago. And they're still incredibly reliable, still get, receive, generally speaking, favorable customer um, reviews. Um, and, and I want to emphasize our members are, as I said before, the median size is 2,000 customers. That's a population of about 3,000. Our members tend to be very close to their local populations. They understand what their residents want and they expect. And so they will navigate those changes according to what the local population is looking for. There may be, there's going to be different approaches in every area of the country, uh, based on size and based on different factors, um, and, I, and, I, and I think that closeness to their customers and that and that special uh, connection that they have is going to help them navigate these changes in a way that isn't disruptive um, to customers' way of life. Well, let's talk about customers. What do uh, Americans want? Uh, we hear <laughs> this all the time because. You know, the what Canadians want is not what Americans want. What Americans want is not what Europeans want, especially these days after the invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, the repower uh, strategy they've adopted to accelerate the energy transition. So uh, from your point of view and the association's point of view, what do Americans who be, who are being served by your members, what do they want? I, I think it really depends on where you are. Not every American or in, even in certain localities they want the same thing um i think first and foremost they, they want i think really at the top of mind of all else is, is is liability they want to make sure that the lights stay on they want to make sure that their their ac is working in the summer uh, and, they, and they don't want it to be too expensive and, and they want to make sure it's secure so i think that's i i think that's still at the top of mind for for all americans uh, now as for do they, are they expecting more in terms of EVs or are they expecting more in terms of renewable generation? I think it really depends. Uh, I would, you know, it, any consultant, a consultant would love to know what's on the mind of most Americans or, or what most Americans are thinking. And um, there, there are going to be certain parts of the country where um, our members are maybe not moving fast enough and maybe in some it's like they're moving too fast. Um, it, it really, I hate, I hate to put it this way, but it really depends on locality. Um, but I think Americans are expecting lights to stay on. I think they are looking for new opportunities to, um, uh, for new technologies. I, I think they're, they're starting to slowly embrace electric vehicles. I think that's coming more slowly. I think there has to be a lot more education about them, uh, frankly. As an EV owner myself, there are a lot of great 
things, benefits to EVs that aren't promoted. Just they're nice cars, they're good cars. Um, and, and so I don't think customer that the average American doesn't necessarily appreciate that. Um, but at the same time, we also have to realize, again, the challenges that, that come with EVs and, and, and adoption. Let's talk about um, some of the federal legislation that's uh, that's been in the news lately, and the Build Back Better bills, and the infrastructure bill, and uh, and I would imagine that that given your association's job to represent your members in Washington, you've been intim- intimately involved in those debates. What's your take on on uh, the Biden administration? Well, and the, on the on the the bills that the Biden administration has been championing. Well, I think we were generally supportive of the Infrastructure Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that was passed by Congress. Um, there are a lot of provisions or opportunities there for our members to, to take advantage of, of, uh, of some of the uh, grant money and some of these opportunities to develop charging infrastructure. So, so I think, as I said, we were generally supportive of that. Um, um, I, I think we've been consistent in our support of, of some of the changes that are happening in the industry. But again, we're, we've been stressing the need for caution. We don't want to go, we, we just don't want to wind up in a situation where we're sacrificing reliability. Um, so we continue to be involved in these conversations with the administration, with, with DOE and with the various federal agencies. Gotcha. Um, does it look like um, a Build Back Better is going to make it through with, uh, you know, some compromises and changes uh, uh, within the, within the, the house? Um, professionally, that's a little bit above my, not above my grade, grade separate pay grade, because I'm not, I'm not involved in the lobbying efforts. Uh, so I couldn't tell you for sure whether or not uh, Build Back Better in, in any form is going to pass. It's, it is May. Um, your elections are coming up in, in November. Uh, Congress doesn't, in election years, doesn't tend to be entirely active in the summer. So I don't know what the prospects are, are of, of any legislation being passed. Um, as a political scientist, I would say probably not, but uh, I don't know. Gotcha. Uh, well, well, Paul, thank you very much for this. Uh, fascinating insight into how uh, American uh, uh, public power companies operate and what some of the big issues are and we really appreciate your insights all right thanks i appreciate the opportunity